You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is a bi-monthly analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, we take a look at the first unofficial Bond movie, a crazy and wild comedy, and that's just the production. It's 1967's Casino Royale. Hey everybody! <laughs> Welcome to another edition of the Bond Zilla podcast. Yeah, you notice I was laughing there a little bit. Yeah, um, because I am very giddy. Yes, about this uh, spy comedy mm-hmm. we have to talk about today. Well, I'm Nick. Yeah, I'm 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 Will. And, this and is, I'm... it's hard not to bury the lead on this one. Yeah, um, for you maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we have quite a film yeah. a- ahead of us on on, mm-hmm. on this one. But um, it, it it should be should be exciting. Um, but um, if you guys are not only interested in Bond news, but you're interested in Bondzilla news, yes. at the end of the episode, I will be dropping uh, some big news about uh, some some things we are going to be uh, doing with the podcast. Um, just uh, some future plans. Um, so stay tuned after. Uh, the primary discussion, and uh, and then I'll tell you that I'll treat you yeah. to a thing. Now I thought we were all done. If no, I mean I knew we weren't all done, but maybe you, the audience, you yeah. thought, you know, no we went, we went through the we went through all the eras. We've seen Connery shoot, you know, be you know go uh, into. Um, International missions in yellow face. We've seen uh, Roger Moore in clown face. <laughs> Jesus. Um, uh, we've seen... Um, you skipped over Lazenby yeah, because it, everybody does. Exactly. So that goes to show that we, you know, touched upon it uh, We properly. know our audience. We know uh, our films. Dalton did a thing. Yeah. Uh, Pierce Brosnan in Goldface. No, that was that lady in Goldfinger, but... Brosnan face. Invisible face because he's in the invisible Well, no, car. we had a diamond face. Yeah. Yes! <laughs> We had a diamond face, and um, and uh, Craig in Grumpy Old Man, I don't want to be here face. Yes. Uh, but we've been through all the eras, uh, and so I guess that's it, Nick, right? There's no more for well, the audience to get invested in when it comes I mean, to Bond. I mean, you know, those are all the official eras of James Bond that we've gone through, mm-hmm. but there are uh, a couple of unofficial, non-canon, oh, oh no. kind of outside of Eon projects that we have to tackle. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of 1967's Casino Royale, the first film adaptation of Casino Royale. Ah, um... Speaking of not burying the lead, yeah. I feel like it may behoove us a little bit to kind of explain the type of movie that we're talking about. Like, I, yeah. I feel like we should at least, because here's the thing. You get into our James Bond movies, kind of get what we're what we're going for. Like, maybe a little campy stuff, but essentially a spy movie. We get into the Godzilla movies, big monsters fighting. Yeah. Destroying cities, fighting things. You think you know what you're getting in for. <laughs> I don't think... I, I think we would be doing a disservice to our audience if we didn't properly prepare them for what we're getting in for. And it is a movie that that only I have described when somebody was asking me, what did I watch last night? 
that I had to describe that it is James Bond by way of 60s Batman and Monty Python. <laughs> with with the, with the classic uh, 1960s sex comedy really yes. thrown into it. So to let you guys know, it, this James Bond is a... His, a farcical piece of entertainment, to put lightly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> extremely irreverent, mm-hmm. while also in many ways holding the very least of grasps on the, even the concept of James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> like, how would you describe the movie? Like, oh, uh, like if you were to describe this going How in, would I in? describe this? It, it basically is, it's like, that 1960s sub comedy genre of sex comedy, yes, mixed with an attempt to be a parody of a James Bond movie, yeah, mixed with just insanity, yeah. And we'll get into many specifics later on in the episode, but it was just I feel like that had to be set up front, yes. So, and and, and just to give us an idea, where is this in the Bond canon timeline wise? So this comes out the very same year as You Only Live Twice. Um, the production-wise basically matches up with kind of that Thunderball You Only Live Twice era, which is something we're going to get so into. We, so in, in the Bond movies, we're four, three or four movies in? So this movie would have been released the same year as the fifth movie. Okay, as the, okay, okay. But four, mo- four, four movies up to that point. Great. Um, cool. Um, so, <laughs> Nick, how did, we, how did we get this? All right. So, uh, we talked a lot a little bit of this in the uh, – Casino Royale 2006 episode, but just to kind of get a really a refresh of how these rights came, basically where the Casino Royale's rights have been up to this point, Mm -hmm. because we all remember that uh, Ian Fleming, uh, not long after he wrote the original Casino Royale book in 54, 53, um, sold sold off those film rights almost instantly uh, to a man named George Ratoff. For a total of six thousand dollars, which isn't really that much, is about fifty six thousand dollars in twenty eighteen money. I don't know twenty nineteen money, but twenty eighteen yeah. money. Got it. You got to account for inflation. Yes. Yeah. Um. So Eon has never had these these rights. Are always kind of been nebulous up until ninety nine when the trade for the Spider Man rights was made. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, George Ratoff makes a deal with CBS, and he does the Casino Royale uh, TV adaptation. Um, that is Jimmy Bond and on climax with an exclamation point. Uh, the the rights still bounce around a little bit. Um, after Ratov's death, the rights go to Ratov's widow, and Ratov's widow sells it to a man named Charlie K. Felding, or Feldman, excuse mm-hmm. me, not Felding, Charles K. Feldman. So Feldman is actually a very important figure in Hollywood history, and that he's one of the he's one of the first big player agents in the history of the business like he was someone who discovered a lot of like the like 30s and 40s hollywood talent he was like instrumental in kind of increasing uh salaries for actors and and introducing the idea of you know adding you know part of the gross of the movie into their contract stuff like that where he was a big time agent but by the time that he gets the rights in uh 1956 Feldman had moved on from being an agent to starting his own production company. And he had big eyes on the Bond franchise. Now, Fleming had not wanted to, at this point, Fleming had not wanted to sell um, 
the other the rights to the rest of the Bond sequels just yet. So Feldman was content with just having Casino Royale. He knew Fleming was working on a movie called uh, James Bond of the Secret Service with a man named Kevin McClory. So he wanted to try to rush out this idea and get that out. But just because of the nature of people, you know, it's the spy genre was kind of big, but not necessarily huge. Mm-hmm at that point before Bond came into being. So he had a little bit of time uh, getting a a development deal for it in terms of a studio that would want to pick it up. Uh, So he started pouring his own money into this, uh, which is going to be a common theme uh, that he will continue to pour money into this movie. Um, So he's developing it for a little bit, um, and then the news hits that that Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman have now purchased the rest of the Bond rights, and now he's really rushing to get this movie done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a point where a more kind of serious adaptation was in the cards that was going to be directed by Howard Hawk, mm-hmm. um, and that was going to star Cary Grant, which, if you remember from our first episode, was also a consideration of the Eon team. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. Cary Grant, but Cary Grant would not be playing James Bond in the Feldman version, but he would be playing instead a American gangster recruited by the CIA to play Le Chiffre in a poker game. Yeah. So, unfortunately for Feldman, just things happen where he's beaten to the punch. Dr. No comes out in 1962, and now he's kind of like, shoot, I have these rights, I need to do something with them, but they've already established what Bond is. So I can't compete with that. You know, unlike McClory, McClory had the confidence of saying, well, no, I am going to make my own Bond movie and I'm going to do this before he made the deal with Eon. Feldman was more so like, no, there's no way I can compete with this. They, they hit the home run with Dr. No and it was only going to increase from there. Uh, so there is one other attempt from him to do a kind of more serious version of it with a very different twist, a very still sexual twist in which uh, instead, of Lashif, instead of being this agent of Smirsh, or uh, eventually Quantum in the, in the 2006 movie. But eventually, instead of that element, that Lashif would be a owner of a series of brothels, mm-hmm. uh, and then Bond would kind of have to get that up. Um, Interesting. But <laughs> Feldman still had the eyes on the big prize, which was now, in his mind, working with Eon, working directly with Eon. So in that time frame of Dr. No, uh, from Rush With Love, Goldfinger, uh, he does bring up the fact with Eon, and you know he does contact Cubby and uh, Saltzman, and basically like, hey, I have this, I have this one book, you know, we could do something with this, we can, we can kind of did this. But after Goldfinger, um, they're basically, you know, Eon is getting these pitches from two fronts. They're getting these pitches now from Kevin McClory, who realizes, well, I could make my own Bond movie, but I'm not going to have the really the budget to compete, even though I know my movie would be better. So I'm going to go to them. And same thing with Feldman. Feldman's like, I can't compete with them. Why don't I get that? Mm-hmm. Eventually, as we know through history, uh, Cubby and Saltzman pick Thunderball because one, it has a script. Two, it's a more exciting movie. And three, as much as they hate Kevin McClory, they really don't like Charlie Feldman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Feldman is very much wants a complete creative control in the project. He wants a, you know, he wants a percentage of, of the box office cut. And McClory is a lot more willing to work with uh, the team. Uh, so they go with Thunderball. And then after Thunderball comes out, they had a miserable time working with Clevin McClory. And they're like, well, we're not going to do that again. Especially, as I mentioned in the Casino Royale episode, that um, Cubby always felt that by, by the time they were doing Thunderball, they had already moved on from a, just a poker game. That they would have to do, they had too many stories to go through, that to go back to the basics. 
So Feldman was just completely cut out, and Neon's like, we're not doing any work with you. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it's Feldman's idea that he's going to make this a comedy spoof. Because his previous picture, a movie called What's New, Pussycat, uh, a sex comedy starring Peter Toole and Peter Sellers, and mm-hmm. Woody Allen, of course, um, was very successful. Even it wasn't a critical darling, uh, did a lot of box office numbers, had a very uh, well-done soundtrack by Burke Baccarat. And he thought, well, if I can't, if I can't compete with them directly, I'm mm-hmm. gonna basically be the counter to them. I'm gonna be making fun of them. I'm gonna be the the comedy. I'm gonna kind of be. It's, up har- here. it's hard to see why they didn't like him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that was his, if that was his go-to. So he's at the point right now where, so essentially, all this just came out of that there was some lingering James Bond rights. He wants to make them. He basically just wants to yeah. make well, his own. He spent money on getting these rights. Yeah, he, so he legally bought the rights, but it's like. He doesn't want it to sit. Right. So he so he's going there. Uh, everything turns into a direction where, you know, the Broccoli's, they're just going their direction with Thunderball at this time. Yeah. But it has nothing to do, like, he doesn't have any remainder of the rights or, or anything. It's just like, he's just going to be like, he's just making a movie out of spite at this point. Kind of, yes. Okay. Like, he basically <laughs> is like, I'm going to do something with the Casino Royale rights. I have the rights to this book. But he does have the rights. He does have the rights. Okay. Yes. So that's why he can still use, like, the characters and uh, stuff okay. like that. Okay, got it, got so it. So basically, anything from the Casino Royale book, he's mm-hmm. welcome to use. So Feldman is kind of putting together this movie, and he hires a writer named... <laughs> Wolf. Sorry, it's just like uh, this movie. <laughs> he's, he's hiring a writer named Wolf Mankiewicz, mm-hmm. uh, who writes a uh, first draft of the movie, uh, but unfortunately dies two days before he's supposed to pitch his version. But the version does get sent to Feldman, and he has a couple of other writers, uh, John Law well, it's and already Michael a, Sayers. It's already a classic Bond movie. People are dying yes. in, in, behind the scenes. Uh, do some rewrites. Yeah. Uh, so first thing he does, first thing before Feldman does anything else other than the writers and the script, is go for Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers was a major part of the success of What's New Pussycat and has, you know, has becoming basically one of the rising comedy stars in the world. He had done Dr. Strangelove at that point. He had done both, two of the Pink Panther movies, Shot in the Dark and the first Pink Panther and he was basically like Feldman's like, I want you as my Bond, essentially. Mm-hmm. So the, the lead in the movie was intended to be Peter Sellers as basically James Bond slash Evelyn Tremble. But that stuff kind of comes a little bit later. Um, so Sellers, interestingly enough, doesn't really want this to be a comedy movie. Mm-hmm. Sellers has it in his head. Well, so I'm going to be Bond. I want to be James Bond. Right. So, <laughs> Peter Sellers uh-huh. convinces Feldman to hire writer Terry Southern, who wrote Dr. Strangelove, uh-huh. to write only his lines in the movie. Only James Bond's lines. Only Peter Sellers' Peter lines. Peter Sellers' lines. Yes. Okay, yeah. And Peter Sellers is telling Terry Southern, okay, they're trying to make this like a goofy comedy. I'm trying to kind of make this a little bit more serious. So, yeah. So, kind of try to do that for me. Okay. So Terry's like, all right, I'm getting paid for this, so I'll kind of do whatever I need to do. Um, meanwhile, Feldman's like trying to get you know Peter involved in the process, right? He's trying to kind of be everything right this way. So Peter's like, well, Peter Sellers is like, well, we need uh, you know we need a chief. Why don't we get Orson Welles? He'd be great in this role. And Feldman's like. Awesome, I can get Orson because uh, Feldman, early in his production career... This already is instantly falling apart. Yeah. So 
or, or uh, Feldman early in his production career had uh, helped fund Orson Welles' version of Macbeth, which was a famous flop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Orson Welles at this point in his career, he still kind of has that name attached to him, but he's at that point, if you read his Wikipedia, where he's doing a lot of projects that don't get off the ground. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of doing these other just regular acting projects in the, in the middle of, of trying, to, you know, trying to get money and keep the fund rolling for different productions and sci-fi movies he wants to do. So Orson comes in, and Orson is a noted not fan of anything Bond. Does not like the Bond books. Yeah. Does not like the Bond movies. And he's when he was quoted at saying at one point, I don't even watch my own stuff. Why would I watch anybody else's drivel at that point in his yeah. life? Uh, this he, coming from the man whose final role was as Unicron in the uh, in the animated Transformers yeah. movie. <laughs> That's true. It, no, it, 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 honestly, like look it up. I think it, IMDb marks another movie as the actual final one, but it, it was one of his final roles yeah. uh, in life. Um, so Orson comes in and he won Oz Feldman um, for helping out with Macbeth, even though it was a failure at the, at the box office failure he still basically feels like well you you made a passion project for me mm-hmm. and two he needs the money mm-hmm. but you know he knows he's orson wells he's got some pull mm-hmm. so he's like listen if i'm gonna be in this movie uh i want to do some magic that's what i'm interested in what is going on orson wells is what? like listen man i'm kind of back into this magic thing i did some magic in the 40s and i've kind of been away from it but now i'm back kind of into this magic thing so i want to do some magic and Feldman's like, great, let's do some magic. Who cares? Like, I want to make this movie. Next up in the casting process yeah. is Woody Allen is in this movie. Uh huh. Woody Which Allen, which makes sense because yeah. he was in uh, what? What's his name's previous film, right? Yes. Yeah. What new, mm-hmm. What's yeah. new pussy? So actually, here's the deal. Uh, Woody Allen had written What's New Pussycat, right? And the whole deal with that movie is that Woody Allen was supposed to be the star. But Peter Sellers basically kept improvising and basically pushing himself as the star, and his his storyline with Peter O'Toole kind of took precedent uh-huh. to Woody Allen, and so Woody Allen's script for What's New Pussycat kept kind of being, you know, basically changed by everything else. Right. And then where is he at in his career? So this, this is point? he's just a writer at this point. Okay. He's basically a writer actor. Now. We're gonna get to a little bit more about him. Okay. But basically, what Woody Allen is like, I hate Feldman. I hate Peter Sellers, <laughs> but they are offering me a lot of money. Oh, no. So Feldman is hiring Woody for this movie, solely hoping that Woody will do rewrites. Like, he wants to convince Woody to do rewrites on the movie. But Woody knows this and says he'll only rewrite his own scenes. Like the only parts of the movie that he will do any writing for is his own scenes. So Woody Allen does basically write out all of his own sequences. Um, so... Let's recap. We had Wolf Mankiewicz, who died two days before he was supposed to push in his script. Mm-hmm. We have two other writers that came in that are credited in the movie. Mm-hmm. We have Terry Southern, uncredited, writing all of Peter Sellers' dialogue. And we have Woody Allen now doing all of his own dialogue. Yeah. And on top of that, like, and then you have just actors and performers who are taking it upon themselves yeah. to inject things of their personal, um, things of their personal interest within the movie, regardless of the material, yes. one of which actor is super jazzed to be in the supposed namesake of the movie, and one who doesn't want to be there, but is some is for some reason a lunatic who wants to do magic. <laughs> 
Are um, we up to date? Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. So the final casting for right now as uh-huh. they kind of get this together is Ursula Andress okay. uh, as Vesper Lind. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a name that recognizable to do have seen Casino Royale. Eva Green's uh, character from the uh, uh, Casino Royale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, Ursula Andress was actually discovered by Feldman back in the uh, late 50s and had done What's New Pussycat as well. Um and obviously Feldman was very eager to work with her again because at this point she had been said to be the most beautiful woman in the world. That was kind of the title given to her by various magazines and stuff like that. But also because she was the first Bond girl and Feldman feels like it's going to be an ace to his movie and mm-hmm. an ace to, you know, to, you know, putting it up against Cubby and them to be like, I have the first, I have the Bond girl. Yeah, that's going to get people girl, in. Bond girl. Yeah. Uh, and Ursula was just very much like, she was just having fun with life. Mm-hmm. She was very much like, I'm game for whatever you guys want to do. Mm-hmm. Like she had, Dr. No had made her a star and had afforded her to do whatever she wanted. And it's kind of the same thing. Now she was probably the most professional yeah. of all of the three people that are the other, all the cast that we have yeah, yeah, yeah. main cast we have so far. Uh, but there's basically that. So uh, they also hire a uh, director uh, by the name of... The one and only director uh, yes, of the, the one, movie. the one and only director. Yeah. Uh, uh, Joseph McGrath, mm-hmm. an uh, Irish director who was good friends with Peter Sellers. Uh, and so as of right now, what this movie is, it's basically like a version of Casino Royale with some more like kind of that sex comedy, you know, stuff. So but it's also, a comedic version of Casino Royale. It's basically a Casino Royale with kind of the sex up a little bit. Okay, yeah. So the earliest scenes that they're filming, they do the uh, introduction scenes between um, Evelyn Tremble slash James Bond and mm-hmm. Vesper Lind in Vesper's apartment. Uh, and that kind of goes all smoothly. Um, but Sellers also kind of says, like, oh, I want to do some dress up. And, you know, they're like, oh, hey, let's just have some fun with this. Let's, like, you, know, let's, you can dress up as Hitler if you want. Why not? <laughs> Um, but then we that's get, also not a joke guys that's like a that's something that happens thing. In the movie, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but and that kind of is going all fine you know it's it's doing what they can be but then we get to the casino scenes and trouble starts a brewing because on the first was day, that a pun no uh, oh because oh, you said treble <laughs> Oh, I said. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were trying to make a pun. <laughs> no, trouble starts a brewing because all of a sudden, as they're they're doing, they're basically filming um, the big back arrest scene between mm-hmm. Le Chiffre and um, uh, James Bond. Yeah, the card game the that card none game. of us know. The kind works. of how it works yeah. that was replaced by Texas Hold'em in the 2006 movie for that very reason. Yeah. So they're about to start shooting. They've shot maybe one shot. And Peter Sellers takes over uh, Joseph McGrath to the side. And Peter's like, I don't want to work with Orson. And Joseph's like, you don't want to work with him today? And Peter's like, no, I don't want to work with him ever. I don't want to be in the same room as this guy. I I don't like him. <laughs> Remember, Peter had suggested Orson. Yeah. So what? Is it, maybe is he scared because he thinks he's a sorcerer now? Like, does he think like Orson Welles actually knows magic? <laughs> Like, is that why he's afraid? There's a lot of different reasons that have come out about why this relationship l- l- soured. L- l- lay him on me. Um, basically, Peter, there's some who say um, that Peter was worried that Orson was going to outshine him. Okay. Yeah, with um, his magic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a story that um, 
one of the one of the many princesses of the time, Princess Margaret. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where exactly. I should have looked up where she was a princess of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she had someone who was known Peter Sellers, and she made an appearance on set. And Peter, basically, in his Peter Sellers way, made a big like show thing about like oh like you know Princess Margaret is coming and like I'm, we're gonna do that. And she he had a big thing. But then Margaret snubbed him and went right to Orson Welles, oh, okay. uh, and that sort of thing. So that was kind of an embarrassment. Peter Sellers. What is this? Like that. This sounds like an episode of Entourage. <laughs> like what? Like what are we doing? And then uh, there was a report that Orson had called um, Peter Sellers a quote fucking amateur, mm-hmm. and basically tensions kind of arose on set. Okay. And so basically now they had to redo the setup so that basically you would only get the shots of Orson right and right. then Orson would leave the set and then the shots of Peter Sellers right mm-hmm. so at one point because they're never on screen together there's right? one yeah. there's exactly one shot where yeah. there's an over-the-shoulder shot oh that was another thing that Orson apparently again one of the other stories that Orson said like I'm not going to be the over-the-shoulder shot he's going to be the main over-the-shoulder shot and it's like well we need to both be the over-the-shoulder yeah it's shots. like well no the point is is that you get both of them <laughs> like it's yeah. not like what whatever so or else Basically, my magic's not going to work. This kind of deteriorates over the the couple days. What? Yeah. No. And so McGrath and um, McGrath calls Peter into like the trailer. It basically is like, like they're basically getting into an argument. Mm-hmm. Peter Sellers punches his director in the face. Nice. And the director, director punches back. Awesome. And, Love it. Uh, Peter Sellers' stuntman comes in and breaks it up. Oh, I was going to say, he, and then he punches both of them. <laughs> and then they basically kind of laughed at the absurdity, but there was still a lot of tension on set. Yeah. And then one day, they're calling for Peter Sellers, and he's not showing up. Mm-hmm. He, Where did he go? What happened? I, I don't know. Where did he go? So they're looking for him. Joseph McGrath is like, what's going on? Where's Peter? And then the first, the first AD mm-hmm. uh, says, oh, I just found a note in Peter's trailer and he's like what does the note say and he opens up the note and the note reads I've gone to replace the needle on my record player signed Peter Sellers so what actually was happening is that Peter Sellers had gotten word that his wife Brick Eklund um who is the future Mary Goodnight from uh uh Man with the Golden Gun uh is back home in Sweden and They've been having a lot of marital issues. So he basically just leaves the set to try to save their marriage. Okay. Uh, Interesting metaphor, but okay. So at this point, Feldman is kind of like, what the hell is going on here? Joseph, go get your actor back. Mm-hmm. And Joseph's like, "That's you're the producer. That's your job. You're dealing with all the bullshit. I have a movie to make. Right, right, yeah. And so Joseph is out. Uh-huh. He's done. He's out of there. Yeah. Wait, what do you mean he's out? He's fired. Joseph McGrath yeah. was fired from the movie. Wait. <laughs> Why? Because he wouldn't go get Peter Sellers. <laughs> so the guy, so he's just, you're right. He's supposed to stay there making his movie. The producer's like, you go get your actor back. He says no, so they fire the director? Mm-hmm. While the actor just disappeared. Yes. Essentially. Yes. Continue. <laughs> so eventually, Peter does come back to set, uh-huh. and we have a new director, uh, Robert Parrish, uh, who is coming in to direct the movie. Uh, so basically, what Robert Parrish does is he finishes up the casino scenes and helps out with most of the torture sequence that we have in the movie, the kind of crazy uh-huh. little torture sequence. But then Peter leaves again, 
uh-huh. because his wife. Wait, is, and who's directing at this point? Uh, Robert Parrish, a man uh, named Robert Parrish. Okay, and who's he? He's just some guy. Wait, what? No, no, no. We we can't just skip over it. Where'd they find this guy? What's his, what's his credentials? What did he uh, do? He was a um, a former child actor who had received a uh, film editing academy award in 1947 for had, what? For a movie called Body and Soul. Okay. And he had moved into uh, directing, and basically Feldman's like, I need a guy. You just come in, just do these couple sequences while I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing. Okay. Okay. So so the movie's been what through. Two or three directors. Two directors right now. Yeah. Two directors. Wait, including the editor. Yes, including the editor. Okay, all right. So, so we've only lost one director. We only lost one director. Okay, okay, okay. So Joseph McGrath got fired because he refused to get Peter Sellers back. Yeah. Uh, and then Peter Sellers came back, and Robert Parrish finished up the uh sequences in the casino and did Mm -hmm. some of the torture sequence. Right. But then Peter gets word that his wife's about to filed for divorce oh, in right. Spain. Yeah, okay. So he leaves again. So a third time he leaves. Yeah. Okay. And, well, sec- really sec- so second time. Second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at that point, Feldman's like, okay, Peter's out. Peter's out of the movie. We're done. And Paris is like, well, I'm not working with Peter Sellers. I'm out, so I'm <laughs> gone too. <laughs> okay, all right. So, now <laughs> Feldman's like, okay, I have some scenes of a movie done. But I have a whole other rest of the movie to go, so what am I going to do? Right, okay. So basically, at this point, Feldman's goes back to- Why even talk about the movie at this point? Like, it's like, this is it. This is the story. Yeah. So Feldman is like going going back to an old idea, one that's kind of going into his brain, that he's had for a while. Right. What he calls the three-ring circus. So basically, his plan now is to hire as many directors as he can to shoot- all the rest of the sequences to basically make like a segmented movie that every director is going to have a, a different thing to do. Okay. So he calls, he calls a bunch of people. None of them pick up. It's a lot of, a lot of people he tried to get, but eventually he gets in touch with two people. One Val guest who basically this was very early on in his career, but he would become known for basically he he had done like um he would go on to do sort of the hammer horror oh, okay. and like like hammer like the cave woman hammer series yeah. and then would eventually transition. Oh no! Did into, he do, did he do the scenes? I think he did. Uh, I'm gonna talk about Val for a little uh, bit. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but he eventually transitioned into softcore pornography at some point. In his nice, life. nice. Uh, and John Huston, uh, legendary director John Huston, uh-huh. father of Angelica Huston, like Academy Award winning director John Huston. Uh-huh. And he he those are the two people that agree. John Houston Val Guest agrees because like his agent says you're they're they're going to send you some money. And they're like Oh, okay, I'll do this. Uh and Houston does it because he's in gambling debt and needs a quick paycheck so he can go back to Ireland and uh play some poker. So he gets these two people together. And he's like, "Listen, Here's all the footage we have of Peter Sellers. What can we do to save this movie? Uh-huh. So they watch all the footage of Peter Sellers, and Val Guest is like, oh, well, you just put something in the beginning and put something at the end, and then we kind of connect them somehow. Right. So he's bookending the movie, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what ends up happening is then it's John Huston's idea, on top of that, to be like, okay, why don't we create a older James Bond character mm-hmm. so that 
you know, we can kind of play with that a little bit, you know, more distinguished, more gentlemanly. So that's where the beginning and ending of this movie come in, and that's where David Niven mm-hmm. becomes in to play the original Sir James, James Bond. J- Sir James Bond. Yeah. So what's funny about Niven is he was the actor that Fleming had in mind when he was writing Bond. That was his like image of what Bond was going to be. But by the time Dr. No got made, Niven was too old mm-hmm. uh, to actually play Bond, so they got Connery instead. And Fleming was a little bit mad because he was like, well, I wrote this for Niven, essentially, back in 55. I wrote this for him. I don't care if he's old. I want him to play Bond. But then Fleming ended up liking Connery. Then he died, and then Niven finally played Bond. So, so now, because if you notice in the movie... Did you notice that Naven and Peter Sellers never have any actual scenes together? I, there's a lot of people who don't, don't have, have scenes scene. together. There's a lot of people who just... like This movie was Relay Race the Movie where certain characters would get the plot and then they would move on with the rest of the movie. So basically, now Houston is like, well, I'm going to do the beginning of this movie and I'm going to put myself as M and then I'm going to kill myself. So right. you can't put M in any of the rest of the movie. Right. Uh, and then I want to... so. I want to go to Scotland. He's like, I just want to go to Scotland. So Houston writes all the uh, stuff with the, um, the the Scottish castle yeah. and the beginning of the movie. But then halfway through the idea, he's like, well, never mind. I want to go to Ireland because I want to go home because he was living in Ireland at the time. Wait, so are you saying like he is literally just choosing these places because he wants to go there? Yes. Not necessarily like, oh, like this would be like good to film here. He mm-hmm. just wants to visit these yes. places. Yes. And then this must sound so absurd to everybody listening right now. <laughs> this is crazy. So they're coming up with the like the Venn sequences. Uh-huh. Um, there was also allegedly at this point a pass at some of the new sequences by one Billy Wilder, uh, the mm-hmm. legendary writer director of stuff like The Apartment, like one of the also one of the greatest comedy writer directors of all time, did a pass at this script. Apparently, so now we have uh, three credited writers and a whole bunch of people that are writing their own sequences. John Huston is writing his own scenes. Billy Wilder is writing random scenes now. You know. Peter Sellers had written all his own dialogue, but now he's gone. Woody Allen is still writing his own stuff, and now a lot of his stuff is thrown out because they have to re re-come up with the idea of what his character is. Orson Welles is doing magic. Orson Welles is just doing magic. Yeah, dogs and cats having babies. Mass hysteria, Nick. So basically, yes, John Huston says he wants to go to Scotland and changes his mind, wants to go to Ireland, but they've already basically casted all these people with Irish or Scottish accents, so they have to find a place in Ireland to film Scottish sequences with. So Houston's doing that. Meanwhile, Val Guest is essentially doing, like, trying to kind of come up with the pieces for the rest of the movie, sort of kind of helping to come up with the ending and how this is all going to connect to each other. Um, Meanwhile, um, they have new characters to cast. Uh, So now we have um, the Mata Bond character Uh by uh, Joanna Pettit. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was filming a completely different movie in France. And some, some may say a completely different movie in this movie. And basically she was just contacted and they were like, we need you. We're like four months into production on this scene and we need to cast this person. And basically, as she describes it, they had already made the decision for her. Mm-hmm. They, everybody else had turned him down and they were like, we need this person's cast. So they were just throwing money at her, basically being like, oh, you're only going to be on here for four weeks, just a month. Not too much stuff. Just you, just you gotta dance. We'll get you a dance instructor, all these beautiful costumes, all this sort of great stuff. Great. Good. Okay. I'll do it for the four weeks. Great. Uh, they also have um, uh, Dahlia Lavi as a character named the Detainer. She's the one that's captured by Woody Allen mm-hmm. at the end of the movie. 
similar scenario. She was like, uh, she was making a movie next door at Pinewood Studios, and they popped in and like, hey, do you want to make a cameo in our movie? We'll pay you. Mm-hmm. And she was going to be on it for just a couple days and ended up being on it for three months because they kept expanding her role. So now we've got two different directors <laughs> that are kind of coordinating but also just kind of doing their own thing as they're trying to kind of figure things out, just trying to finish this movie up. But it's two different directors, but so far there's been four people four who've people. worked on the movie. Yes. Yeah. This is like if you try to make a cinematic universe, but within one movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody's like, I'm trying to figure out how to end the movie. <laughs> yes. So basically now, they also have to figure out how to write Peter Sellers out of the movie. <laughs> because now he's like, you know, the last thing the last thing within the context of the movie that he has is this torture sequence. Right. Where he, they film footage of Vesper saving him. Mm-hmm. So how do you fix that? Well, Val's like, we'll just have Vesper kill him. And then everybody's like, well, how does that function with the rest of the movies? Like, I don't know, but you need to get rid of Peter Sellers. I'm giving you a solution here. So they refilmed that sequence where now Vesper turns, which was never intended to be part in, of In the all movie. fairness, that's how I respond to when I try to solve problems at work. I give a solution, and if somebody doesn't like it, I'm like, dude, I, I gave you this solution. You could take it or leave it. So I, 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 I respect that. I get that. So then... So they're starting to film this thing, you know, John comes in as Monobon, they do the dance sequence, I guess helps direct that dance sequence. John Houston basically does his stuff with the weird Scottish casual thing, mm-hmm. writes all that, and then he's like, okay, I'm going to gamble now, thanks for the money, because he was like, that's all he did. he did the movie for, he did it for his gambling debts. So right now, Val's kind of trying to piece together the rest of the movie, but Feldman brings on another friend of his, and they, a man named Ken Hughes, another director, just to kind of watch the movie. And just kind of give him his points. And Ken is very intrigued with the Monobond sequence, the dance. And Basis is like, I think you could do more with that. And Feldman's like, here, I'll give you money. Do a Monobond segment of the movie. And so then after all of this has been done, mm-hmm. they just add that whole middle section of the movie in Berlin. And then Ken Hughes is like, well, I guess I can do whatever I want here. So now Ken Hughes writes all that stuff in the weird you know, spy school and stuff like that. And so that's how her time on the movie basically went from, you know, the month to almost, you know, three or four, four months uh, at that point, because now she had a whole actual sequence of the movie. And after that, she went, got a haircut for another movie. And then they're like, Oh, we need you for the ending of this movie now. (laughs) So now they just came back with an unexplained haircut. And uh, basically that is, (sighs) There's so much in this movie, Will, I can't even describe. So basically now they're just putting together this crap. Right, yeah. Burt Bacharach still doing the soundtrack. <laughs> okay. They're still kind of involved with that. Um, they don't know how to end it. Mm-hmm. And so basically after all this is done. At this point, I would not. Be- I would believe you if they're like, and then they brought in Mel Brooks to do the ending. Because that's basically well, the ending of this oh, movie. Oh, yeah. And I was, so Woody Allen basically is like watching this. He's watching all this madness happen. Yeah. And he's like, I could direct movies better than this. So this movie inspired Woody Allen <laughs> to start directing his own material. Right, right. This is the Woody Allen origin story of him like <laughs> becoming a director. Mm-hmm. But he, like a famous story with Allen on this movie that he's doing his final scene where he has the detainer, you know, locked up in his, you know, thing and he's doing all this stuff and he's, again, writing his own sequences and he's supposed to be going back to New York but basically they keep delaying him and eventually like he literally like he does his last line leaves in his costume does not return it goes right to the airport and just flies home and he's like I'm done with right. this right okay 
So all this kind of craziness has happened. And then Feldman is also basically like, I have this person. Uh, put him in the final sequence. So uh, you're here. You're a cameo now. Um, like the one guy who does the flipping of the coin. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. like, he was in, like, he was famous in Scarface for doing that, but he also made a cameo in Some Like It Hot. And like, Feldman's like, he's here. Put him in the movie. Uh-huh. And they're like, okay. And then that guy's like, I don't want any lines. So just flip the coin. That's all you can do. Um, so at the end of all this, Val Guest is at dinner with Charlie Feldman. And he's like, listen, I know you did a lot for this movie and I appreciate it. I need you to go through everything. I need you to go through all these scripts that we have, all the footage that we have, and figure out how to connect this, how to connect, how to make this a movie. So Val's just like, listens to the movie. And it's like, well, the two different storylines can be connected by the David Neven Bond and Vesper. So basically all those scenes with Bond and Vesper uh, the one where he first meets her, the one where he calls her about, you know, Peter possibly being a double agent at the end at the Casino Royale at the final battle are all just filmed like a couple weeks before, you know, they need to finish editing the movie. So, so they have some sort of connections for everything. Mm-hmm. There's some other stuff that I'll mention when we get to more specific things in the movie, but there's one last story. Yeah, no, well, please lay it on me. I, I am so enthralled. It's a couple weeks actually before like the movie's coming out. And, it's Joseph McGrath, the original director, gets a call from mm-hmm. Peter Sellers. And he's like, listen, man, I just want to meet up. Um, can we like go to a bar or something? Just like get a drink. And Joseph's like, sure. You know, it had been a couple months since their big fight, their big punching out. You know, they both left the movie. So they get together in some Hollywood bar. Mm-hmm. And they are just chatting. And Peter basically apologizes. And he's basically like, listen, I was going through that you know, possible divorce. I was trying to save my marriage. I got a big ego. I, I was kind of convinced I could play this Bond character like seriously. But they still want to be the Dukon. Like, I was all over the place. I, I was out of line. I shouldn't have done this. I know we're going to work together someday. We're still good friends. I hope everything's cool. And Joseph's like, that's all I really needed. I just needed to you know, apologize. And he, the whole thing was nuts. Mm-hmm. Everything was nuts about it. Meanwhile, they're, uh, as they're kind of having this heartfelt conversation, uh, a person walks in the bar and it happens to be one of the other producers on the movie. Mm-hmm. And he recognizes Joseph right away, and a producer of uh, this movie comes up, and he's like, listen, man, I- I'm sorry about all that stuff that happened. I know Charlie like was doing all, you know, he was kind of really all over the place with this movie as well. We understand that. We're trying to make it something good. We're trying to make the footage you did proud, and... Listen, all this was really just messed up by Peter Sellers. That's who we really need to blame with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he looks over to Peter and he's like, and, and Mr. Allen, I'm very happy that you were able to be in this movie. Uh-huh. So the producer thought that he was, that Joseph was talking to Woody Allen. He had confused Peter Sellers for Woody Allen. So he just insulted Peter Sellers to this person's <laughs> face. And then it's like, hey, Mr. Allen, I, I hope you, I thank you so much for doing the movie as well. I appreciate it. And who said and and who said that? Oh, one of the other producers. Oh, on, just one of the like, not Feldman, but like right. another producer on the movie. What is Feldman doing? Like, is he just kind of like this is the this movie? is the movie? He's still convinced. Like, listen, if we get a good marketing campaign under this, yeah. And the point is, like, he's releasing it two months before you only live twice. Well, what's funny is like he he's still under this assumption that this is his big gotcha. Yeah. Back at oh, Eon. I almost forgot one other story. It's from earlier in the production. I got to tell this. I'm yeah. sorry. So after he had been rejected after uh, of Eon and uh, Cubby Broccoli, Fel- I forgot this. Feldman tried to poach Connery. 
Feldman trying to get Connery for his Casino Royale movie. Right. And so Connery at that point, remember, this is You Only Live Twice, So Connery. he's trying to get him out of doing the Eon movies to, to do his to, Casino to, Royale. Yes, yeah. And Connery is out of this movie. Like, you got to remember, this is 1967 Connery. This is for um, You Only Live Twice, Connery. This is checked out Connery. That's basically like, I'm just doing this right, because like, right. I feel like I have to. So he really doesn't want to like leave Eon and he really, really doesn't want to do another Bond movie at this point. He's not going to leave a Bond movie to do another Bond movie, yeah. definitely. Which, which so I, he, he basically is like, listen, I'll only go if you give me like a million and a half. And, Con- and Feldman's like, no. Ironically, he would end up giving Sellers a million for the movie. Right. And then he would just keep throwing money into us. Do you know how much movie this movie cost, Will? Oh, God. I, I can't even begin to imagine. Like, what, what, lay it on me. $12 million, uh-huh. which was more expensive than any of the Bond f- productions. And it was essentially one of the most expensive movies ever made at that time. Mm-hmm. It was compared very much to the fam- infamous Fox Cleopatra, where the b- budget kept ballooning up and basically, like, almost... Though, isn't that saying something where, like, a huge movie that went over budget back then was $12 million? Yeah. That's saying something. That like That's a definitely a... So, Val... The last thing I'll say before we go through the movie is that Val, after Val puts together the movie, he shoots these other sequences to connect the movie up and give it in some sense or form. Frankenstein the movie together. Yes, yeah. there is a Frankenstein in this movie. It, that's true. There is. We'll talk about that during the movie. I have a thing about that. But um, Feldman's like, you're great. I'm going to give you an extra director credit. I'm going to give you... the credit of coordinating director because you coordinated all this together and Val's like if you do that I will sue you and Feldman's like what he's like you you think if I'm the coordinating director people are going to think that I actually like am the responsible for this (laughs) so then he basically Feldman still felt he should give him extra credit so he gave him the additional sequences which is why Val guessed got it got it the making of this movie, Nick, sounds like a really good Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> yeah, but think about it. like think about something Hail Caesar in tone, and you have the people, and then to keep it human, you have the little scene at the end with uh, Sellers and um, the and um, what's his name going to the bar. Yeah, like and then you have like that little human moment, like for them. Like I can, and then, and then the punchline the is he mistakes him for the other person. Exactly. Like this is a great Coen Brothers movie. Uh, unfortunately, we have to talk about what all this resulted in, yes. and, uh, I, and and quite frankly, I, I don't know which of the two uh, is more entertaining. Oh, I'm looking forward to this, baby. I guess we should just get right into it. Let's do it. This is Casino Royale 1967. Oh, boy. Ah, there you are. I have been looking for you. It is little Otto. Who is he? He was one of your mother's lovers. We often find him lying around. Is he dead? Hard to tell. He always looked like that. Come along, child. The auction is about to begin. Auction? Tonight we are selling one of the finest art collections in Europe. Le Chief's collection. Who? Le Chief. Who is Le Chief? The man who owns the art collection. What art collection? The collection that's about to be auctioned. Who said anything about an auction? You did. Who am I? Frau Hofner. Never heard of her. You're insane, my child. Quite insane. I think she's right. All right, everybody. Um, I was very interested to uh, see the reaction to this movie. Um, 
we we saw it actually in a group of people. Uh, I had two listeners of the podcast shouting out to Patrick and Kenny who had not seen the uh, this movie, and we invited them over for a uh, rollicking time. I had seen this movie before. I actually watched it. I mentioned it on the podcast. I watched it when we when I bought it. I bought it as a Christmas gift for myself. Uh, knowing I would need it for the podcast and knowing that I wanted to actually own every movie with James Bond in it. And when I watched the movie for that first time, um, cause I, I don't know if I had seen it all the way through. I'd seen, I knew about clips. I knew about certain sequences. I, uh, I was kind of, it was, a, <laughs> so I, I've mentioned this, I've mentioned this also on this podcast. I have become a purveyor of so bad they're good movies. And also, to an extent, so bad they're fascinating movies. I think that's kind of in that same wheelhouse. Because mm-hmm. Casino Royale 1967 is really not a so bad it's good movie. Mm-hmm. Because there are fleeting moments of kind of brilliance and kind of great stuff in this movie. Sure, sure. But there's a, there's a lot that just doesn't work. But I will say, it's an absolutely fascinating fascinating movie to watch mm-hmm. it's a piece of like 60s pop culture in terms of like this was like things of the 60s it was kind of a little bit of that psychedelia a little bit of kind of that that sex drive that everybody had at that time period not everybody a lot of the young the youths the youths the youths, the youths. as it, at that point had it's kind of like it, it early you know kind of attempted a parody i mean i know like hollywood had had parodies and satires in the past but this was kind of very much it very much is like an attempt at like you kind of a scary movie or an austin power or type of deal in that time period, oh sure sure which sure. is very interesting and very strange and it is a as you mentioned a frankenstein movie it's a movie of a lot of different moving pieces that kind of barely connect and you can kind of hear why in our preamble and our in our pre-production but it's just so interesting that this movie exists it's well, one of those movies that you're like you just like we describe it to people. We're gonna describe it to people on this podcast, and you cannot believe like this is an actual movie that exists and is technically based on a Ian Fleming James Bond story. Most telling is in the opening credits when it's not like based on the book by Ian Fleming. The title is suggested by the book by Ian Fleming. <laughs> Will, I've talked a little bit about this movie. What do you want to say? What do you want to start with? Who? Um, well, it's interesting that you bring up the concept of the so bad it's good movie because I, I feel like you and I both kind of share a love for that. I, I don't maybe like I, I'm a little bit more favorable to the concept of so bad it's good because I kind of look at movies like that as true pieces honestly more true pieces of art because it's one of those things where it's just like a morbid expression of just all that can go right and wrong mm-hmm. with art. And I'm just talking about that's what so bad it's good movies are for yeah. me. So if almost those are almost like prize jewels and possessions to have, like I, like, I feel why I don't own one, I should own a copy of Batman and Robin. Like, I feel like I, if I'm a Batman fan, I want that movie because yeah. it's such a pure expression of everything that and can like go Godzilla right and wrong with it. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just it's just stuff like that. I mean, even some of the other like really older Godzilla movies, like like a like a Hedora or like um like uh, movies yeah, like no, that. No, I know. Um, so I this <laughs> this movie um this is this if we're talking about where this lands in the lexicon of film yeah. for me, 
Uh, this nestles safely into what I like to call the anti-movie. <laughs> um, uh, and so far, I need to really fill out that list. So far, it is populated by Transformers 1 through 5, mm-hmm. uh, the Michael Bay movies. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, two. Uh, is it 2 through 5? Two through five. Two through five. Yeah, yeah. two through five. Because yeah. Yeah. because one is like kind of like it's legit movie. <laughs> yeah. And then once you get to two on, it's just progressively progressively anti film. And mm-hmm. by and by anti film, I don't mean that in a bad way. It was just like these are movies that are amazing in a bizarro universe. Yes. Where all the rules of filmmaking, narrative, structure, and storytelling just don't apply, or if they do apply, apply in this inside-out, backwards, upside-down, timey-wimey BS Mm -hmm. world. Yeah. And that's what this movie was. This movie, to me, was so bizarre. It wasn't a total wash because... You can clearly see what they were doing. Yeah. It w- it's clearly a movie that was – it was so simultaneously – it was so bizarre because it was simultaneously entertaining and tedious at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like there would just be points where it was just so tedious – but then there would be random points where I'm like, that was a funny joke. Or, like, this would actually make sense and is entertaining in a movie like this. Yeah. But it's so marred by just any lack of structure <laughs> or good use of, com- of true comedic timing. Yeah. And you, you could never... I don't even want to fathom like what was going on in the movie at any given point in time. Like again, I referred it to a relay race of characters where they would introduce a character and then that character would be the main character for like five minutes and then another character come in and then that character is like a main character for 20 minutes of the movie. And then I'm like, okay, and now Orson Welles is like doing magic who Orson Welles is awesome in the movie, by the way, because it's Orson Welles. Um, And then you have like, and then you finally get to the end of the movie when it becomes like an Austin Powers, James Bond, like, all right, I, I can see this. And then the movie ends, I kid you not, it, with basically the same ending as Blazing Saddles, <laughs> where it's just like this huge, just kind of like, like, just bar fight between Native Americans and cowboys. And then there's like an old timey reference to the police. And then when just as I'm starting to try to figure out, Nick, when I, the thought enters my brain, which, by the way, has just been by this movie shriveled up into the size of a chestnut. I'm just, I use what little thinking capacity I have left to question Nick to myself, not out loud, internally, because I'm giving the movie a chance. How is this going to wrap up? And as soon as I have that thought, Woody Allen explodes because he swallowed a pill that's a bomb and kills everybody. All of them are up in heaven except for Woody Allen who sinks into hell and then the credits roll. What did I just watch? Throughout the movie, I kept on reestablishing what the movie was. And it like and I and it was weird cuz I kept on doing that up until the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. So when the movie starts, I had brazenly said, "Oh, this is kind of like the 98 Godzilla of of um what's it called? Of uh, Bond." Of Bond. And the reason I said that was because more so from the content of like the movie. So because they're basically introducing James Bond as essentially like this old Sherlock Holmes type character yeah. where all these guys are like basically coming to him 
to like you know request his services. So yeah, it's and like James Bond is like this this uh, uh, avant garde like eccentric Sherlock Holmes type who lives in his mansion and does like crazy things and yeah. like uh, and and the reason I said it was ninety eight Godzilla is because they basically have just used all the names and like all like the. The, the core concept of him just being a spy, mm -hmm. but then have created an entirely different persona of him. Yeah. So that's kind of where I called it like the 98 Godzilla. Then I was thinking like, oh, no, wait, this is like 60s. This is no, this is like offbeat screwball Pink Panther type comedy mm -hmm. because you can tell like the the dialogue was like made to be kind of like that very dry quippiness. Mm -hmm. Like and so and then you you could tell that there is that no. Every, to the movie's credit, I, it was always knew the type of movie it was. Yeah. Like, I don't know if everybody in the movie thought that knew what type of movie they were in, but I, it was always like they always thought they were being funny. Then it kind of goes into this Ireland thing where it's like, I don't know what this one is. And then it turns into, okay, now this is like 60s Batman. Like, this is, like, the 60s Batman movie. And then it just progressively goes more and more off the rails as we go along. And I just kept on having that thought. All the way up until the end of the film. It's just, it's like, it's like, I don't even know where to begin because what's kind of hard about this movie is that when you really look, like, when you think about that production, obviously this movie makes sense in terms of how it got made, but it very much is like, do you want to talk about Peter Sellers' Evelyn Tremble, knowing that it was supposed to be a whole movie about him, but now we only got the parts that they shot? Yeah, well, no, and, because, and like, like, the like, movie as is, and I will say, like, I it is interesting it makes sense in retrospect when you find out how they bookended the movie and that it feels kind of but I will say that they edit it in a way where it's cohesive in the sense where I understand the plot of it's and then our lead James Bond who's the older James Bond uh, James, his, David Nevin uh, David he I the movie makes the the most of the movie makes sense is like all right he is like giving off this this name of James Bond to people, but the movie is he's kind of ultimately like the main character. Right. They, can, they, cre they have to create him to be the main character. So like they did enough of a good job to make it coherent mm -hmm. from that point of view. Um, so you really look at it as like he's the main character, and the Peter Sellers is just kind of like one of the one of the co leads yes. essentially. Yeah. yeah. Oh boy! Okay. But the but the movie is essentially like they get Sir James Bond played yeah. by Naven, uh, who had retired. Yeah, who had retired and is celibate now, right? No, he's always so. The th here's the thing. So here's the thing. Okay, he's always been celibate. So that's the whole thing. Is like he's kind of going on about like back in my day, like the the bot, you know, the spy was like a gentlemanly, like all that sort of stuff. And then basically, he's like, now you've given my name to that sex crazed maniac, which mm -hmm. is supposed to be a nod to connery so that's the so that's supposed to be a nod to the, the eon, actual james bond yeah the eon bond yeah so and then basically m's like we we need you back they're killing all of our agents uh bond is like no and then m decides to blow up james bond's house but kills himself in the process right see that's the thing about this movie it was like again there's sporadically story ideas that you can see where okay this would actually not be this actually makes sense if you're doing, like, the spoof of James Bond. Yeah. So, like, I can just see the idea. Like, so that kind that makes sense to me. Like, you mm -hmm. want to do the idea. It's like, oh, no, in our comedy, there's the real James Bond who's a distinguished celibate. And, like, yeah. like he's mad at, like, you know, the 
the one that's going off. And you can actually see... Where that's going, yeah. Yeah, and you could see, like, but them it, make that movie now. Maybe not use the James Bond names, but you can see, like, oh, like, um, uh, like I don't know, like, who's, like, an older comedic actor? Mm, like, Steve uh, Martin. Yeah, like, if you had Steve Martin or, like, a Mark Maron, <laughs> like, he's, like, James Bond, but then, like, uh, what's his name? Um... Like, but then, uh, uh, from he's in Hobbs and Shaw. What's his name? Oh, uh, Jason Statham. Jason Statham. But like, Jason Statham is like going around the world being like a secret agent, and then like Mark Maron's like he's taking my name. I, it used to be all about like just being a gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> so well, like, you it, could see that yeah. as like an idea. But it's idea. also hard because you can see that idea, but then you also have a director writer who's like basically saying, "Oh, I'm only doing the beginning of this movie, and like I'm just setting it up for the rest of you, I guess." And then you also have another director making the end of the movie and you've already kind of shot most of the middle when you're just kind of making kind of connecting sequences and but there is comes a point in this movie where like i said it starts out as kind of like this very pink panther-esque comedy yeah and then then it just takes you for a whirl because then he basically ends up at essentially like a like a so what is it okay so the whole point he's going that is m's castle and he's going for like the funeral essentially um but Smirsh has infiltrated the castle and replaced it with all these sexy women. And the whole thing is that they're going to discredit James Bond. They're going to like, you know, make him all like horny and, and have sex. And right, gonna right. Destroy his celibate image and like basically ruin his life. So Okay, so plot-wise, that's where we are. But the reason I brought that up is because we're following this movie that you think you get tone-wise. And then like... Basically, James Bond goes up to like the 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 leader, the lead woman of like this uh, right of that, this place, who's posing as uh, M's widow. Like, right, she's pretending to be M's wife. So James Bond gives her like the the remains of M, which is the toupee. Yes, he's like, and then she calls it a heirloom. Yes, she calls it a heirloom. And in a very then, then a all very, of us wait, in a very Scottish accent too. So and then all of the, simultaneously, everybody in the room is like, "What are we watching? <laughs> what happened?" And so then, oh my god! And then. And then you're also like kind of like just baffled by and I'm going to use this to jump off into the next story point. But then you're kind of baffled that like, okay, so he's doing like James Bond has this stammer, which is extraordinarily distracting. And they're like, why are why are we doing this? And I think like, you know, no offense to anybody with a stammer. I'm not trying to make fun of that at all. But like you can just tell when it's an acting choice. Yeah. Like by an actor. And it's so irritating. And then we hop into basically the rest of the movie where he finally gets to mi6 headquarters oh it's mi5 in this movie. oh it's mi5 to which he stops stammering and then he talks to money penny's daughter who by the way there's like this weird moment where he starts making out with money penny which i first of all i thought he was celibate so like what what is he doing well, he's, you know i guess like in that in those days i guess Kissing is not like people would be like, oh, like you can kiss a girl. Oh, okay, so that's where like, he kept kissing it at. a girl is not like losing your virginity. Got man. it, got it. So, so he starts kissing her, and then he's like, oh, Money Penny, and then she's like, I'm actually Money Penny's daughter, and then he's literally just like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so that happens, and then he's like, oh, by the way, Money Penny, uh, it's like, have you heard me stammer since I've been here? 
And, and she's like, no. He's like, all right, well, let me know if I do. To which you informed us that that was literally that the director didn't like the stammer from earlier in the movie. So that's how they wrote well, no, it out of the that, movie. That, the stammer, if you've noticed, was only in the John Houston stuff. So John Houston was right, the one right. who like, came up with the stammer. And then the rest of the director's like, well, we don't really want the stammer. Like Val Guest is like, well, that's not really that funny. Like it's not, not going to do anything. I don't want to have this guy stammer for the whole movie. So then he inserts that scene and basically like, oh, yeah, no, the stammering's done now. So then his plan becomes he's going to recruit a bunch of James Bonds. Yes. Essentially. That's yes, the he's going to give everybody his Bond name and basically kind of try to confuse Smurfs. He's going to give all the men and women in MI5 mm-hmm. the, the James Bond moniker. Right. And But then it like but then there's like a bit where it's like, but they need to find somebody who is like James Bond. Yeah. So like who he basically we need we need an anti female spy essentially. Like an anti female device, as he calls it. And it's like we need someone that all the women want and then we gotta train him not to want women. Right. So here's a crazy thing. Okay, so this is one of those things again. So there's this whole sequence in the movie now where like they're gonna you know, they're trying to pick uh this guy you know, Money Penny's making like makes his makes out with a line of men and like basically like no, you're not good enough and like writes him off and then finally they find this guy named because it's supposed to be like a comedic bit like she's like going and testing all the men and they all make out with her and they're like oh you failed yeah and yeah so there's that but then there the, she finally gets she chooses Coop a Cooper mm-hmm. and then there's a whole sequence where. There, you know, Cooper is in this like karate place. Well, well, first of all, but he failed. He also fails technically, because didn't he was like making out with her and stuff. Well, no, because because the whole point was that he's trying to find someone that's like the perfect man, and then they're gonna train. Oh, they're him. gonna. Tra- oh, I see. Yeah. Okay, they're all gonna right. train. Him I, I misunderstood yeah. that scene. Yeah. So that's why it's like see, they had to go to bed together because you yeah. had to make sure like okay, this is something that women would want, and then we're gonna train you. Oh, like- so all those previous men, it wasn't like that they went for it, but they didn't go for it good enough. Yes. Exactly. Oh, I see. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And then they were like, and then it starts this montage where not this montage, this scene where he's in basically a dojo. Yeah. Uh, like surrounded by beautiful women and he can't kiss them but he has to throw them to the ground which yes. was somehow funny every time he threw a woman to the ground yeah i don't know why because it wasn't like violent but it, it was just so goofy looking yeah like he yeah like this like judo like yeah. toss mm-hmm. so here's the thing about that character yeah so where did he go he was supposed to be so again this is into the inside of the movie you're right he in essence, he was supposed to be kind of a replacement character for Peter Sellers. That it was going to basically be like taking over what Peter Sellers' stuff was going to do at the end of the movie. But then so much of the movie kept changing all around him that they basically just forgot about him. <laughs> like they came up with ideas, but they didn't really <laughs> want to focus on him. So he's just not in the rest of the movie until like he like he just was in like the villain's lair at the end of the movie. Like he was like he's just there. He's like. That's it. Like, you see him, you know, you think, like, okay, because there's not even a payoff to him, like, being this anti-female spy. Like, he's not, like... Imagine a modern-day movie that sets up a character, and then they're like, oh, okay, but we may need to get reshoots to fill him into the movie. But then you just, like, you get to, like, final cut of the movie, and then you're just like, oh, man, we forgot to put Matthew Fox back into World War Z. <laughs> like, it's just... <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> yeah because that's the crazy thing because you're, you're, you're setting up as this kind of joke you're setting up it you're you're setting it up it's a setup for a moment where he's training not to be like a you know he's not attracted to women he's not gonna have sex with anybody 
and then the payoff should be he fails and gets captured. Right. But you never see that moment. It's just and the thing is none of the other characters mention him. Nobody's like, "Oh, what about Coop? We should send Coop in here." No. He literally like you have that scene in the dojo where he's tossing all the women around. Um and the detainers there as well. And then all of a sudden, the movie keeps going and like your first time you're like you probably forget about him too, but in the back of my mind, it's like, I wonder if we're going to get back to that guy again. And then he just shows up. Like, not even like, oh, where have you been? It's basically like, oh, he just shows up in the last sequence of the movie. It's crazy. Well, and then, because then, and the, this is what I mean, it's like a relay race of movies, because then they go on to basically recruit the next James Bond, yeah. who was Sellers. Yes. So this is the stuff, so again, like, the stuff with Sellers was written... And shot for that original version of the movie. Right. No, no, no. I understand that. So it's just like, but it's just kind of like, yes, now we go move on to Cellars. And then they have the scene where it's like, again, Naven and uh, Ursula Andress uh-huh. kind of just film those scenes at the air right to connect it. So that's how it's connected where it's like, now it, in the context of this new movie, yes, Peter Sellers then, is being recruited. And jog my memory. And who who is it that goes recruit Sellers? That's Ursula Andress. Yeah, that, that's her. Vesper. As Vesper. Yeah, as so Vesper, yeah. Vesper goes in to recruit her. So then it becomes like, oh, okay, so... Now she's leading the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, she's the lead of this movie. Okay, now we're introducing Seller's character, and then eventually he becomes the lead of the movie. Yeah. It's so crazy. Yeah. And then after that, doesn't it become Vesper? Is it Vesper's movie again, or is that Money Penny? Who, like, who who are we following? When we go to, basically, the Tim Burton house. Oh, that's, no, that's, remember, that's not Mata Bond. That's Bond's daughter. Right, that's Bond's daughter. Oh, yeah, because that's another thing. So then we go back to Naven, and then he goes to visit his daughter, who, I guess, I guess they try to do the joke where, like, so... He Bond comes into like this like this basically this Indian palace yeah. where this white woman is, you know, culturally appropriating all over the place. And then she I, yeah, I was making a joke. <laughs> He's like so then like they're dancing and they're I guess like they're going for the joke of you think he's going to have sex with this girl? Like because it's like Bond. Yeah. But then it's like actually twist you're my daughter. Yeah. And then it's like, excuse me? There's even a joke in this movie where she is says, if you weren't my daughter, I think I'd fancy you. No, if you weren't my dad. If you weren't my dad, whatever. She's so ba- yeah. I got I to gotta explain Excuse- what, what the Mata Bond thing is. Yeah. Because it's briefly mentioned, in the, it's mentioned at some points in the movie. So Mata Bond, in the context of the movie, is the daughter of James Bond and Mata Hari. Do you know anything about Matahari? No. Okay. Because this is... I was discovering this. I was like, why is that... Like... So, Matahari was a Dutch entertainer mm-hmm. in World War One, mm-hmm. who basically... That was her stick. She dressed up like in the Indian garb and went all around Europe. Mm-hmm. Who ended up being a real-life spy for... I believe it was Germany against France or she started off as a as a French spy and then she ends up being like blackmailed by the Germans to spy on the French and then the French executor and it's a very infamous story because she really was like this famous entertainer around Europe and then she was like executed for being a spy why it's in a 19 why a reference to a World War One Dutch spy is in a 1967 spoof of James Bond I don't know how much of that audience would have understood that reference to Matahari. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of the audience would have laughed at the reference to Matahari. 
But essentially, yes, Matahari was the Tracy of Bond's life, that the one true love that he had, uh, okay. uh, the one that he kind of stayed with, and then he had like he had to you know take her to France where she was executed, and then he has he has a daughter with her. But yes, so he meets up with Mata Bond, and Mata is tasked. Then he's like, "Listen, there's this your old your mother's old dance school in Berlin. We think it's like a smirch." Um, cover up. You're right. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna go to. We're gonna send you over there. And yes, yeah, so she goes to Berlin. She takes a taxi all the way to Berlin. She enters the dance school, and yes, we enter a Tim Burton movie at this point because the set design of this school is basically jagged black stairs with kind of like tilted doorways. Yeah, it looks like when they go into like the weird nightmare world in Beetlejuice, mm-hmm. like that's what everything looks like. Like it looked like I'm expecting Frankenweenie to like just like like run out at any point. It's so bizarre. So that was another thing about like the entirety of this movie. There was so much money on the screen. There was yes. just so much production. Oh, the whole Mata the whole Mata Bond dance sequence is like a legitimate like like Hollywood dance sequence. It's got all these like dancers and like a big set and like fancy like you know um, you know like ribbon carpet things that they're throwing up everywhere mm-hmm. and like glitter and it's like long. But what but what surprised me it's like the variation of that. So there's like that, then you have these Tim Burton sets, then you have like the psychedelic like yellow submarine and live action type sets. And then you have finally like James Bond villain headquarters sets. Yeah. And then like the big like, you know, casino sets. It was just there was just so much money on the screen. I want to I go back. I want to talk about this Madabon sequence for a little bit. Because mm-hmm. first of all, like I will genuinely say that just on its own, I think the whole Madabon in Berlin is probably my favorite part of the movie. Because mm-hmm. I think it's the one somehow that has the most solid consistency within itself. It's just kind of its own mini story with this weird setup with actually some pretty funny gags in that, in that sequence. I think my favorite part is that Madabon wears just throughout the entire sequence wears her like Indian headdress garb as if it were like her superhero costume. Mm-hmm. Like that's what I kept just imagining. Cause he's, she, she's like, she comes in and it's like this robot man. Yeah. Okay. So is this guy a robot? Yes. Is there a robot in this movie? It's like a robot cyborg dude. Okay. All right. So it's like a robot cyborg dude. And then like this, like, you know, kind of the stern German teacher archetype. And they're like, they knew her mother. And she's like, I'm Mata Bond. I'm the daughter of Mata Hari. And it's like, prove it. And then she just takes off her coat and she's just in her full her full garb. And then it's just like, she just wears it casually for the rest of the sequence. And I literally like, this is just as if like Wonder Woman were in this movie and she was just wearing her Wonder Woman outfit like mm-hmm. in this weird Tim Burton universe. Um, but I just thought the whole sequence actually just, I liked, I actually liked the person, uh, Joanna, who played Mata Bond. I thought she, she had like some presence despite the fact that she was like, very much like I am totally not fit for this. You're just I'm just doing it because you're giving me a lot of money. I actually thought for the most part the women in this were pretty good. Yeah, I, I, I thought like overall like I, I thought like the women were actually very distinct and did a good job. I the think movie. the Madabon sequence also has one of the funniest gags of the movie. I think I may know what you're talking about because well because I do agree like this was like so silly and screwball, but also again like irritatingly so because then it was like. The biggest problem with this movie, I felt, before we get to that gag, is, like, 
just from a con- because I because again I didn't think it was a complete wash the entire movie like yeah. I get the type of movie they're going for and I could and I almost couldn't make fun of it for that reason even though it ended up not working but like the biggest thing is it's so relentlessly silly mm-hmm. like and again like I I feel like you can I'm one of the person who favors like really pushing the edge on how silly something can be but it was just every single choice was just to have like just so many silly dumb things and then oftentimes like different types of comedy mm-hmm. that it didn't work so like you have like the weird like avant-garde like tim burtony weird character thing but then you have like oh now we're gonna put in wordplay humor when this character has never done it so like when she's talking to like the head of like the building yeah it's like the whole like it's like she's like who is here and she was like like the, the, no, you just, know what i'm talking so about yeah like you're talking about like when they're going down the stairs yeah when they're going down so the basically stairs. like in, in previously in the scene, the robot cyborg guy who's like in love with Mana. He, he keeps on getting all horned up every time he sees her. But she like keeps like just rejecting him and he's getting all like, I'm sorry. It's like my programming or whatever it is. So basically. And by the way, you know he's a robot because he opens his shirt and he has like basically a car battery attached to him. He's like, I'm running out of juice. Oh my God. Because so, well, also at that point, she like, she like goes into the, oh yeah. There, she goes into the bathroom and like she pulls down the thing by the toilet. And then she makes like a John joke mm-hmm. as, she, as the walls turning around. But basically, she's going through these hallways, and then she runs into the headmaster. And the robot person has told her like, "Oh, they're doing an auction to raise money for Lashif, and like because Lashif has to make this money to pay back Smirsh, and so they want to stop him from doing so." So then he's she's like, "Oh, we're getting ready for the auction," and then like the 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 headwoman, and then Mata is like. Oh, the auction of Lashif stuff, and she's like, "Who's Lashif?" It's like the person that the auction's for. What auction? Yeah, it, they basically just enter like the routine of who's on first. Yeah. It was so crazy, but it did ultimately lead to, I think, one of the best jokes in the movie because she's is like, "What auction?" Like the auction you just mentioned. Uh, the, who am I? Uh, you're Fran Holler. I've never heard of her. You must be crazy, child. And then I think you might be right. I just think the whole, like, it's just, again, solid gag. Yeah. Solid gag all the way through. Oh, oh, that's the gag you're talking about. I was thinking of a different gag. Oh, what's, oh the, okay. the gag I, I was I thinking, like that gag. That was, that was kind of bizarre. But, like, the one I loved was when all the stuff is going to shit and then she is escaping the 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 whole the building oh, yeah yeah and um there's a character like i think on a chair that with a gun oh yeah it's so that whole thing again it was just one of those things where it's like it's one of mata hari's former lovers but they stuffed him yeah and then but then what happens is like basically through a tussle uh she like doesn't she like kick open the door and then it kicks open like the the woman back she kicks a woman back onto the dead body who whose hand turns around and then shoots her yeah and i i there is a lot of like physical comedy like that that was pretty but that whole sequence gets crazy i kind of like the yes like kind of the 60s batman-esque like nuttiness to it because there's also like all these though the the thing is like they're it's all these generals and they're not actually uh you know, bidding on art pieces, they're bidding on blackmail, famous blackmail photos, mm-hmm. and uh, so then there's all this racist stuff with like the the different generals, like uh, the the. I see. I thought that was funny though, like because maybe it's because it was so dumb. It was so dumb because so basically it's like these. First of all, it's all these uh, like these army generals from it's like, like different. It's America. It's America, Britain, Russia, and China. Yeah, and then they start the bidding by being like. 200 rubles and 500 Chinese dollars. And then the bidding gets so high that the Russians are like, 
50 bottles of vodka and the Chinese people are just like 300 grams of rice. <laughs> it was just, it was well, so Well, then it gets crazy because then Mana like changes the film. She steals the film, but changes oh, it to yes! a war picture. And yes! then the American general's like, it's war. And then they all fight each other. They think a war is going on. And like the British guy's like, I'm sorry, lovey. I won't be home tonight. It appears a war has broken out. <laughs> that See, I thought that. No, but I think yeah. that whole together, like other than some of the racial stuff, which I mean, I, I it's kind of ridiculous and an absurdity, but still like it's not like my favorite stuff. But that whole sequence. It's sequ- just so dumb. That whole sequence is. I think that whole sequence with Montauban in Berlin is the one where the silly energy just kind of keeps it up the most where there is enough in that sequence where you're like, if this had kind of kept up throughout the entire movie, mm-hmm. it would be kind of more in that kind of scary movie, that first scary movie. See, kind of. I, but I also, like, it's funny because at first, like, I think I had that reaction about, like, oh, the different ethnicities of the general. But see, to me, that that would be, like, a solid spoof of, like, it's kind of dumb that in all these movies where it's always the archetypical Russian yeah. or like the Chinese, like or the no, Korean I, I think leader. It's fair. So it's like, why not play yeah. into that just more farcically? So uh, we get that's a word. I don't just, know. Just are gonna keep kind of jumping around. We also get a we get a pair, which is we get a parody kind of of the Q scene. Which is fu- I felt like that was just more of just like a wackier version of a well, Q yeah, kind of well, yeah. yeah, more so like a wacky version of the Q scene, which is kind of funny because. The Q scene had really only been in like re- the Q lab scene had only been in really one Bond movie at that point, which was Goldfinger. There's a tro- there's a dwarf dressed up as an elf at one point. Yes, because Peter said was like I've been being tailed, and he's like, oh, that's part of the training. And it's like, yeah, but I don't. I think like the whole point of being tailed is like I'm not supposed to notice, and then it just pops up where it's like like a yeah a midget or a little person. Yeah, I couldn't in, I couldn't tell in a Santa Claus costume or like an elf costume. Yeah, is like spying on him, and he's like, oh no, that's just part of our security, and then it's just like yeah. That's it. There's also a guy who's like uh, trying to. I think. See, I thought that was a good gag though too. He was trying to. He's trying on a hat that has a gun in it, but then it just explodes in his head. Yeah. Or or the guy who's uh, karate chopping all the blocks of uh, cement. Yes, that was a great gag. So like when he he's chopping all the cement blocks, he's like yeah yeah yeah, and he's like oh it's like uh, you're doing great. So and then the guy like salutes like, and then Sup! hits his head and then he passes he he out. He knocks himself out. Yeah. So I thought. That was that was pretty great, but then I, I also liked though I did like the, also the little mini gag where he's where Sellers is gonna make a pun about the poison pen, but then Q and his assistant are like we hear that like all the time, yeah, like, yeah, like that all was the jokes, funny. yeah. Um, so then Sellers eventually goes on his mission and then meets Lashif, yeah, uh, who, at Casino Royale, at Casino Royale, and who's w- played by <laughs> Orson, uh, Welles. Orson Welles, who but I thought Orson Welles was actually so awesome. What's in funny the movie. is this movie because like if you imagine like an actual real life version of like an actual legitimate version of of Casino Royale, like Orson Welles would actually be a really good like real Lashif, yeah. But like he's like here's the thing about Orson Welles, like no matter what he's doing, he just. He has that Orson Welles presence. Like, there's yeah. no other way to describe him. He's just like, when you watch Orson Welles, it's like, you you can't not enjoy it. No, it was, I thought it was pretty awesome. And I thought, like, his whole, like, doing the magic. Because I think, like, here's the thing. I think that maybe, ultimately, this is the, this is what you want him in. Because he may not like being in a James Bond movie. But if you just let him be, like, a wacky villain... It works because you're right. Like, honestly, like if you just took that same character and put it in one of the old Bond movies, it would have worked. Yeah. So like he, I thought was an actually like legitimately good part of it. Yeah. But he, yeah, he's just introduced just making a woman float. Like he makes a table. That float. was so cool though. And he's just like, you there, 
right there, and it's like a close look up into, of his eyes. Look into my eyes. Look into my eyes. Like I, I thought that was, I thought that was really good. It's also a great gag where he, I like the gag too, where he takes out the handkerchief and he's like, he's on bond like, oh, if a marksman like that can cause wars, why don't we all have peace? And he just like keeps bringing out flags, <laughs> and like everybody behind him has a flag and like sparklers, and it's like, yeah, world peace. So he eventually captures Sellers. Yes. And- so. Here's so again. Here's a kind of hint that Sellers left the movie. They never filmed the Sellers. They were never ever filmed Sellers getting captured. Mm-hmm. So basically, the there's the gag in the movie where he's in the race car. Right, right. That was a joke gag. That was a gag that Peter Sellers basically just did for the crew. Like that was like the take where he did like like in my Lotus Formula Three, tee hee hee. But they didn't have any other footage that worked mm-hmm. for that sequence. So they basically just put that in, and then it just cuts to the 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 torture sequence. So this is like kind of again. This is. The Which one you po- had to clarify was the torture sequence. So basically, this whole part of the movie, like the 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 actual stuff at Casino Royale and the torture sequence, is the only real stuff that is from Casino Royale, the book. Like, because in the Casino Royale, the book, they play Baccarat, and like that was like where Sellers was trying, in some ways, to like kind of keep it serious, which is why the poker game is played kind of seriously, even though. Again, Orson is doing his magic because they just filmed that. And then Sellers is doing all his weird accents. Right. Which is like, whatever. But he's like trying oh, to... Make- yeah, at one point, Sellers just starts talking in an Indian accent. He, and does, then, he says Indian and Chinese. And then you're just kind of like, why did he do that? Mm-hmm. What a bizarre movie this yeah. is. So we get to the torture sequence. Uh-huh. But yeah, so basically... But instead of being hitting the balls with a with a carpet beater... Right, yeah. Uh. Orson Welles is going to do Torture of the Mind. Yeah, and by the way, like, he's sitting in a chair in a room that looks like something that is, like, a less designed, produced version of something out of the Dark Crystal. Like, he, like that's the, the kind of, like, it looks like a big dungeon oh. with this big, elaborate chair. Well, that's where Peter Sellers is. Meanwhile, yeah. Orson Welles is basically on a Star Trek set somewhere. Y- yes, yeah. Uh-huh. Where he's basically about all these buttons, and there's like, and he'll be like, it'll be, uh, it's like, it's like, this will be your end, Bond, and, yeah, and, and, and like, stuff like that. That chair is being waited to be reupholstered. It's like, with me, it's like, oh, you have an imagination, Bond. But basically, yeah, instead of being hit by a carpet beater in the balls oh no because remember it sucks him down into the chair yeah. in this weirdly it sped up in post-production like like with, ah! with, with, with red with red filter he's like <laughs> yeah exactly basically as, as orson welles says he's doing torture of the mind yeah so then orson welles basically it goes all crazy colors and like crazy psychedelic like um so then i guess this I thought he goes more crazy, and then like Peter Sellers then starts fighting like a group of bagpipers. A bagpipers. Well, because the whole thing, because of course, at the you know, what's the biggest torture of all, Will? Bagpipes. Sure. <laughs> so then he starts kind of getting muddled into the bagpipe community. Yeah. This one of which is played by Peter O'Toole. Yes. So. I'll explain this real quick. Peter O'Toole also starred in What's New Pussycat. Right. And basically was like, I'd like to do a scene. Can you give me a bottle of champagne? And then they're like, yeah, sure. Come on in. And so the whole scene is basically like, it's, it's Peter O'Toole and he asks Peter Sellers, are you Richard Burton? And then Peter Sellers responds, no, I'm Peter O'Toole. In which Peter O'Toole responded, then you're the greatest man to ever breathe. God bless you, sir. Right. Uh, but basically, yeah. So he's, he's going through this thing and then he sees Vesper, Vesper who... Proceeds to kill all the bagpipers and including Peter Sellers. So this kind of changes in context. Yeah. Because, oh boy. Okay. In the original sequence, 
of this. Because Vesper has the bagpipe gun, and mm-hmm. she shoots down all the bagpipes. So in the original sequence, yes, they're all just imaginary things, and then she rescues Sellers. At which point, so I'm going to get to this. Later in the movie, there's a there's a Frankenstein. That's played by a David Prowse, uh, who would go on to be the, the body of Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. Prowse said in an interview, uh, actually around Star Wars in, in 1977 at a convention... That this, he originally was supposed to be at the end of the torture sequence, in which he was supposed to be dressed up as Super Pooh, which was going to be a giant Winnie the Pooh in a Superman costume, where uh, Sellers and Vesper would have to fight him. That cannot be real. That's not a real thing. <laughs> I refuse to believe that. Just believe what you want, Will. Uh, I, so I don't basically, that. but basically, because of Sellers leaving, and Val Guest was like, "Well, now you just have to have." Vesper kill him. They had to shoot. They had to shoot Vesper, being like, uh, "Never trust a rich spy, rich spy." And then shoots again. And then all it does is basically goes in close up enough of the dead uh, bagpipers where it cuts Peter Sellers out of the shot. Right. So you think that he's dead. So then we wrap up the Lashif storyline when <laughs> oh, yes. what's his name when uh, Schmirsch yeah, it, it, like sends people. They're like, "You failed me for the last time." And then like a. Uh, and then um, uh, Lashif uh, Orson Welles is like, no, I can, I can do this. Give and, me twenty four hours. Yeah, and then it closes up on the screen, and there's guys walking towards like the screen, yeah. and they're like, no. And then the guy takes out a gun. It's like you're through. And then proceeds maybe the best joke of the movie, where you think like it's just like a, like a visual demonstration, and they're going to come kill him later. No, the henchman literally breaks through the television out of the console and shoots Orson Welles in the head. <laughs> and then and then the set around him starts like exploding. Spectacular. So that this is around the time when we've been talking so much about it that you think like, oh well so like how does this movie wrap up? We're, the movie's not even close to being done at this so point. So then we get back, so we're back to uh Leven and Madabon. Madabon now has her shorter haircut because she left to do another movie and they're like we need you back because we're doing the ending right and they're just basically doing a gag where it's like oh just like look at the royal guard and then like you know because they're like oh it's like father daughter type of deal Mm -hmm. and then she goes off to look at the royal guard and one of the royal guardsmen is like working for smirsh and he on his horse and he grabs madabon yeah and then what do we see next? Oh, I almost forgot about this. What do we see? So then they're like, so then, and this is just goes to show how poorly some of it's edited. So like this guy picks her up and then starts running off with her. Then it cuts to a UFO. Yes. Just flying down in like, the middle of a town square. Like a flying saucer out of a 1950s like B movie. Yeah. Then we enter essentially a Godzilla movie because quite frankly, the miniature work was not that bad in this. <laughs> it was pretty good. Um, because so it picks him up and then I think like he ends up on on the does he end up there I don't get I don't care so, so he, he, well, they basically so basically they take Mata Bond and yeah. then um, Bond and Money Penny get the note from the the wife the the fake wife of M right yeah because she like joined a nunnery after he she turned on Smurf yeah that was a pretty decent plant and payoff I yeah. guess where it's like oh yeah I remember her from the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. that's the one thing that Valgast and uh, 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 Houston collaborated on because yeah. otherwise nothing else makes sense. But she, they get a note. It's like, oh, they're taking her to Casino Royale, which is where Smirch's hidden base is. So basically, they go into the the Casino Royale. They get in a fight in the Tiger office with the Tiger guys, yeah. and uh, they're taken hostage. And then they're gonna they go into all these different like they basically 
they do the seek like they're like okay like uh plan 48 or whatever it is which is basically like they're being led by these guys and then they kind of like start running a little bit forward yeah and then they like just drop down which is kind of funny because you think the gags i thought the gag was just going to be that they're like just kind of running really quickly and the guy's like hey wait 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 up yeah, yeah but then yeah, they basically yeah. like drop and trip everybody then they go into basically like this scooby-doo room with all these doors like, yeah because the well, basically now at this point you're like okay now we're back at like the most proper version of this movie yeah where it like okay like now it feels like a comedy James Bond movie. Yeah. And and then essentially it, then it opens up it, it it leads to where we finally get the revelation of Smirsh. And who is the leader of Smirsh? Well, it is Woody Allen playing James Bond's nephew, yeah, Jimmy Bond. Jimmy Bond and who by the way was introduced in the movie earlier. earlier. Yeah, I was about to mention this. In a one and if there is one scene that was simultaneous that kind of encompasses the movie or really an element of the movie that is simultaneously tedious and entertaining, it is Woody Allen in this movie. <laughs> so like he has like kind of like a, a funny enough beat in earlier in the movie where he's in like a like a firing squad yeah. and then he escapes like using a gadget and then he goes over the wall but then when he goes over the wall it's just another firing squad that well, I thought that was a decent it's, it's like, and it's all like the Woody Allen type dialogue yeah but see but then those, here was the the issue then it was he was so he was Woody Allen turned up to 20 like he was so it was a Woody Allen that wanted to get off this movie as quickly as but possible but why was he so crazy though like he was so over the top in his so Woody Allen yeah. like so then we show that and then like we introduce Woody Allen who essentially I'm not even going to bury the lead his plan is that he's going to set off a virus around the world that will kill everybody except the beautiful women and everybody who is um everybody taller than four foot six yeah so he will essentially be the tallest man on a world of beautiful women that's his plan yes in the movie meanwhile how like during this whole sequence he's this whole thing where like, he can't speak in front of his uncle. He cannot speak in front of James Bond. He's so intimidated by James Bond's manliness that he can't speak. So there's a whole bunch in that sequence. Oh, also, by the way, there are clones, too, there in this are, movie. There are clones. He puts, a, he puts out a giant magnet... That, that was a funny joke. Like, that was, like, when he's just, like, because the magnet gets shown, and then you kind of forget about it, and then James Bond has the gun, and it's just the reaction of when it just comes down and picks it up. It, it, I thought that was a funny gag. So, it's just, like, uh, but basically, he can't speak. He puts down an invisible glass wall, and he's, like, doing all this, like, kind of charade stuff that doesn't make any sense. Like, he's putting his hands up like he's a rabbit, and he's just, like, and then he's, like, and he's, like, trying to do that. Eventually, runs through the glass wall because he's, like, so... You know, I, but again, that's why it's like there were there were actually some good gags in like especially in this in the second half of this movie. And then he goes to the detainer, yeah, uh, who he's captured. And then again, there's 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 some lines where there's Woody Allen in context. It's kind of like so. There's a whole there's one line where he's like, um, "Why did you like the detainer? This woman is like, why did you capture me?" And he's like, oh, because of all the people that my uncle gave his name to, you're the most beautiful. Mm-hmm. And he's like, do you do you do this to all the women you like? And he's like, yes, I do unclothe and tie up all the women I like. <laughs> and he, he says stuff like that, but he's also just so Woody Allen in some of his other lines where he says stuff like when he's about to get executed, he's like, the, the doctor said that... Uh, I, couldn't get, but, I can't have any bullets enter my body. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's just so Woody Allen in this What movie. if I said I was pregnant? Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh my god. So then he basically gets I like, also like that Detainer called him like an insignificant little monster, which again has aged very well. That actually was funny though, because yeah. she's like, Have you looked at yourself recently? <laughs> yeah, like that that I thought was was super funny. And but then, then again, but this is where you're talking about where, where Alan's going over the top because he's like, I can do anything better than James Bond. So he does like a better version of Claire de Lune that Bond was playing early in the movie, but then like the piano is like playing it for him. Yeah, but, it, there, there's a and it, it's and again the physical comedy and the timing of that joke was pretty but good. then he puts on a sombrero and like punches a thing of like a punches a punching bag with his with exactly Bond's face on it. but then like he's doing it on, and then he like falls over he falls like he then he does like a rodeo sequence where he's like on like a rodeo horse like that's a, what like i mean a, it's like as every time there was like some clever bit of actual good comedy it was just like every single moment was a moment just to be absolutely as dumb as it could be yeah um, or just silly or just stupid and then he introduces yes his pill his pill that looks like an aspirin, it tastes like an aspirin, but it isn't an aspirin. It's actually a nuclear bomb mm-hmm. that like sets off a bunch of tiny bubbles in your body that eventually makes you blow up. Mm-hmm. And, then, and that's basically paid off because basically the woman seduces him into getting her off of the table, um, and then she basically tricks him into drinking, drinking said so pill. So now, now Woody Allen is a walking nuclear bomb. Yeah. They're trying to escape this thing. Uh, they run into the Frankenstein played by David Prowse, and he's basically like, "Where's the office?" And Frankenstein just runs to the office, and they're like, "Hey, that's that's good." They get back to Casino Royale, and it's all with Smirsh operatives now, and they're about to get into this big fight when when someone comes in, is like, "Sir, the American cavalry has arrived." And then it cuts to like a stock footage shot of cowboys on horses, and all of a sudden, cowboys on horses are running through the oh, casino. No, a bubble machine I goes wish off. We were making this up. There's I... like a big bubble machine, so that's filled with bubbles. Like a roulette wheel, like comes off and like starts spinning like a top. Yeah, and then I, I believe at one point they said, "Oh, the police are here," and then it like. Cuts to like an old tiny uh, the Keystone Cops type of deal, yeah, like, yeah, like, like a Buster Keaton type of yeah, like like black and white where all the cops are falling over each other and stuff like and then, that. But that's what I mean. It's like so we're we're in the third oh. act of this. We're in the final like ten minutes of this movie, yeah. and they're just doing gags like this. Yes. Also, at one point, at one point later on in the movie, this was actually earlier on. I think during the bagpipe section, but somebody says help, but then an animated. Like oh, that's Peter, Peter Sellers. Up. So yeah. Peter Sellers is looking at himself, and he like. He so then they're introducing the element that there's going to be animated like accents, like like two D animated yeah. like accents on screen. So yeah, but then but then we have we have the Indians fly out. The Native American. No, no, the uh, the uh, the Indians yelling Geronimo out yes. of a plane. Yes, which leads to a gag where they're. Going around a teepee, doing like like a, a, a teepee on fire. Yeah, like a campfire. Well, basic. first they're like kind of like in the brawl, but then eventually when the teepee's on fire, then they do a very racist character Indian dance, which then transition them dancing to the theme, like the the f- action theme, the yes. comedy theme. So, and then there's like a French guy at one point. Oh, who's that, like good. To, who's like what? Uh, so that was um. That was Ursula Andrus's boyfriend at the time. Uh-huh. And again, that's just 
them being. But that's what I mean. It's just like a, just a French guy shows up, and it's yeah. like, oh, it's good to meet you, James Bond. And then like they have this bit about like Bond can't understand French. Bond can't understand French. So then they he translates it, and then he hits somebody. He's like, oh, and then says something. He's he like, says, what is it? He says murder, like which is shit in French. Yeah. And then he's like, what does that mean? And then he looks at his book and he says, ouch. Yeah, basically just yeah. ouch. And then meanwhile, while all this is going on, like Woody Allen is hiccuping animated like balloons out of his mouth, and, like and counting down until like it how, explodes. Like how many more hiccups he has until it blows up? And, and at this is the point when I'm like Nick. I'm trying to think in my brain. How are yeah. we going to wrap this up? Finally, the, the Vesper shows up again, but she does not. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's this. Well, this Vesper shows up again, but they don't explain. At, uh, she's like, the things you do with money, I'm doing it for love. But then, of course, they can't explain it because this was never meant to be a part of the movie. Like, because, again, Vesper was supposed to be on The Good Guys, but then they just had to make her turn. But they don't have an explanation for it. Like, so who she's in love with? I don't know. Whatever. Then, basically, yeah, it gets to, like, the end. There's all these other kind of little funny gags. But eventually, as we mentioned... Woody Allen blows up. All the characters are there uh-huh. in heaven. Yeah. A song starts playing where basically they're like, all oh, the little Bonds in heaven, but then Woody Allen goes to hell. We get a shot of Peter Sellers, uh, which is funny. Here, here's a story. So in the first cut of the movie, like the very first cut, the one that screened in 1967, they just put a cardboard cutout of Peter Sellers in that sequence. That would have been amazing. But then they basically, the next year, they edited it to be like trick photography. Okay. Because yeah. they were going to put it out in theaters again. And then that's basically, and then, yeah, the movie just kind of ends. It basically is no, like. No, 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 no. It doesn't kind of end, Nick. They all die. The whole building explodes. It, all, it goes into this segment where they're in, like, and we're talking about, like, they're in the clouds playing harps yeah there's a gag where oh but woody allen was the bad guy so he starts to sink down to heaven and then the credits roll or, sink down to hell or sorry sink down to hell and then, and just, then the credits roll credits roll that's it okay that's it that's it that's, that, it. that's the movie and then the theme starts playing again uh but with lyrics this time and that's funny uh man, what a ride! I'm glad this movie exists because it's too. just so bizarre and I'm, it's I'm, so weird. I'm just glad to say I own it. Yeah. And here's the thing: there's a part of me that wouldn't mind watching it again, but if I ever watch this again, like I'm just gonna skip over all the like John Houston stuff at the beginning because yeah. that is the most tedious stuff in the movie. All that stuff about all the women trying to have sex with him, the stuff with like the wassail thing was all is all awful. Um, the it's just like not good. Like that first part of the like that's what makes this that's what makes it even harder for me to recommend is like the first like 30 minutes of this movie are like so tedious. There's like barely any good jokes in that. If the first part of this movie had any sort of the madcapness that even a, lo- a little parts of the rest of the movie had, I think it would even be a more easier watch. But it's you just know so what? Hard. I I actually even though I think that the best way I can put this is that it's almost like you could do a great class or analysis of this by pairing this up with the 60s Batman movie. Mm-hmm. Because the 60s Batman movie is a bonkers and knows what it is comedy yeah. that is very much kind of like on the same level aesthetically similar to this movie. Yeah. But it is very much like it has its narrative, even if it's a little bit loose. Yeah. Um, it has a consistency to it. Whereas Casino Royale is just so relentlessly and aggressively inconsistent that it brings up all those problems about being ultimately tedious and doesn't really come together as a movie, even though it is one hell of a bizarrely, morbidly entertaining yeah. spectacle. I, I'm i glad I own this. Yeah. I'm glad to say I own every Bond movie now, even though it's two unofficial ones. 
I think I, I just go back to what I said is that it's just fascinating. It's just a fascinating kind of a study of just kind of like a crazy film production of like a, a period in time where this was kind of like could be made in the way that it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of both like the film itself and like the culture that surrounded it, like the 60s culture that kind of could lead to something like this. And even like being off the back of something like What's New Pussycat, which I kind of would like to see in comparison to this. Mm-hmm. It's just for similarity's sake. Yeah. I would say at the end of the day, if you're just interested, I really don't think it's it's too bad to like spend a three bucks on YouTube or, or Amazon just to kind of check it out and see. If I would watch something. with people though. Like I would it, I would yeah. get a group of people. Though. I would, like, I like would people gra- who are interested, people who like Bond. Just grab a kinda, few drinks. Yeah. Then, get high. Yeah. You, you may have to. <laughs> for this I, I do. I do think it's like worth kind of checking out. Even here. Even if you want to check out just some clips on YouTube, yeah. just to kind of see. No, see, I think you got to go all in if you're yeah. going to do it because, like, I don't because I don't think like the individual scenes. Because if the here's the problem, the individual with indiv- scenes could trick you into thinking this is a wholly better movie. Yeah, because the individual scenes, if you get one scene, you're going to think, oh, that's the movie. That's not how this movie works. Um. So anyway, so let's let's wrap it up. What, right. what did what did the what did the audience think of this? What, okay, what, so, what's the legacy of so this? Casino Royale thing? came out. Casino Royale. Uh, 1967 came out on April 13th, 1967, um, two months before You Only Live Twice. Uh, so again, that's the Japanese Bond movie, Connery's last one, the first physical appearance of Blofeld, just to kind of get you that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Bond name and the advertising did, in fact, pull in a good chunk of money for this movie. It ended up making um, Worldwide, $41 million, with 22 in the United States, making it the 13th highest-grossing movie of that year. Now, it doesn't really compare to You Only Live Twice as $111 million, but in comparison to those first two Bond movies, it's definitely more than those. Mm-hmm. Uh, Orson Welles said that the the famous poster with the, with the naked woman with all the tattoos of the movie on her uh, kind of led to the movie being a success. Mm. Uh, but audiences were basically like, they kind of captured that, you know, they had the... Uh, the tagline "One Bond is not enough." Mm-hmm. They kind of, kind of played up to that, and and it was well marketed. Reviews were not good. Mm-hmm. Um, reviews were nowhere near as good as which. There were no advanced press screenings. Okay, which you know in this modern age, which says a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Roger Ebert says this is possibly the most indulgent film ever made, uh, and the Times said it was an, an incoherent and vulgar, vulgar vaudeville. Yeah, and uh, that's Var- a really good description of it. Variety declared the bill to be a conglomeration of frenzied situations, in gags, and special effects, lacking discipline or cohesion. So basically, that's mo- not that's not incorrect either. So the movie, um, so the movie was basically kind of that was it. They made the movie. Feldman at the end of the day was successful, and then died later that year. So he basically Casino Royale was his last success before his death. The, the movie has two legacies really when we talk about the legacy of the movie the the major legacy of this movie funnily enough is the soundtrack for a couple reasons one uh it was nom the uh, movie was nominated for best original song for mm. the book of love making it the first bond movie to be nominated for best original song before any of the eon films uh, there are people who genuinely like the score um, that basically like kind of the Burt Bacharach score and, and just kind of the the the, the uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass theme, uh, which is very infamous. Uh, the theme song actually, so the theme 
hit tw- number 27 on the Hot Billboards charts, and The Look of Love hit number four. So very successful soundtrack. It's regarded as one of the most well-recorded LPs of all time from a technical perspective. <laughs> in that, basically, as Feldman was throwing his own money in the movie, he threw money at the production to basically like make this the best-sounding soundtrack you can. And they played with a lot of different equipment and ideas that wouldn't be popularized for a couple years. So mm. they were very much ahead of the game. Oh, that's interesting. But... What this movie, this is this movie soundtrack, the Casino Royale 67 soundtrack, is known as an audiophile's dream and basically became a legendary LP to the point where people who are audiophiles who love the kind of music would seek out the Casino Royale LP to be a test for their record player because the recording was so good that if there was any modulation on it, you knew the record player was busted. Mm. Uh, and it became, and it still is a very popular item, a very hard to get item uh, in pristine condition. Mm. Um, and I was reading, it was funny because I was reading, when I was doing research, I ended up reading an article from 1991 uh, about like, just kind of the craziness surrounding like the legacy of this Casino Royale P from this weird movie. Mm. Also, some of the soundtrack is featured in the uh, Stewie Griffin sexy party gags from Family Guy. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Uh, but the other legacy of this movie is the fact that people just view it as this weird anomaly. Mm-hmm. That it's just like this kind of, again, weird part of the 60s pop culture, weird part of just kind of film culture at the time. Uh, and just kind of, it's being like this just weirdo bonkers Bond movie that had Peter Sellers and Woody Allen in it and like, you know, had a bunch of different gags and, and the five directors and the production. It's just that legacy of just how wild it is that this movie existed more so than anything else. There are people who like, like the movie, like people think that they're they're you know, it's kind of gotten that kind of cult following in some ways, but most people do view it as like, it's not a great movie, but there is just something interesting about the fact that this exists the way that it does. Oh, sure. I mean, you, again, like I said, you can't help but be, uh, enthralled into the bizarre spectacle of it mm-hmm. all, yeah. like, and and I definitely m- mean that. Um, yeah. It was, uh, listen, I was very curious to see what these uh, out of continuity bonds are, and I honestly, as despite how I sound throughout the whole episode, it did not disappoint. It's so it's definitely just like this is what kind of the podcast is about. It's just kind of. This the weirdness of it all. We talked about this. Bond basically invented the franchise. This was a movie franchise that was in the nineteen sixty seven was gonna be five movies in. Mm-hmm. And it was basically like this is among the like those first times where it's like someone's taking someone else is taking advantage of that. That we're like, okay, there's this other popular franchise that's making hundred forty million, breaking box office records, becoming one some of the highest grossing movies ever made up to that point. And and I kind of taking it and you know and in that sense, it's like, well, if I can't make it with them, I'm not going to compete, so let's make it silly. Obviously, I think we also had spoofs and satires even before this with some 40s and 50s movies, but this is really more into that, like, what Mel Brooks was doing, not just a couple years later. Right. So thanks for sharing with this one with all me, right. Nick. Um, but we got uh, some we, announcements? Well, well, first of all, well, we have, just to wrap up the episode official, we, what's our next movie? Because oh, wait, our next wait, movie, hold on, hold on. What kind uh, of role would Harrison Ford play who, in Casino Royale? Who would he be? I feel like he the way this movie is, he would just have to be Indiana Jones. Yes, like in the final fight yeah, sequence. Yeah, in the in a final fight. Or or he, he no, he's definitely like some weird joke where he's like something gets destroyed in the fight and then Indiana Jones like all he does he's he This he belongs pops, in a museum. Yes, and he just yeah. points like that's all he does. He's like this belongs in a museum and then he gets punched out by one of the Indians. Yeah, that, that's, that's definitely what happens. That's what it would be. All right, um, so, but our next movie is another out of continuity yes, Bond movie. Yes, so this Bond. is our technically speaking 
our final Bond movie uh, up until 25 of the podcast. Because after this, we're going to do other Bond adjacent and related things. But this is going to be the last actual Bond movie for a while. And again, we get to see some old friends in this one. We get to reintroduce to Kevin McClory. We get reintroduced to Sean Connery as Bond. Mm -hmm. And we get reintroduced to the plot of Thunderball. Oh, man. Lucky me. It's 1983's Thunderball remake starring Sean Connery, Uh, Never Say Never Again. All right. We'll see how that turns out. Um, If you are interested, though, we have just dropped a fresh episode straight out of the theaters onto the mics for uh, the recently released uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Uh, We got to see it. Uh, We recorded our review on it. Uh, Had an excellent time recording said review. I think it it turned out to be a really good show. Uh, So please, if you haven't checked that uh, episode out, please go back and check that one out. And uh, as I mentioned up at the top of the show, I promised some uh, big announcements. Uh, we are here to tell you that you will be blessed with more Bonzilla content as Bonzilla is officially going weekly. Uh, we enjoy talking about this, and we think this uh, will afford more opportunities for us to div- uh, kind of get a l- get get some more in of some yeah. more opportunities to talk about more different stuff that we're not just talking about the different movie entries especially now that we're moving outside of the bond realm of things um so we are still maintaining our schedule of having a movie or entry uh twice a month as we normally do and in those weeks that we normally wouldn't have an episode we will be delving into a specific topic uh, for Bond or for Godzilla. So, it, like, just for example, things that we may do, just for examples, like it could be an episode all about the Bond girls, and mm-hmm. we can talk about, or an episode more specifically about the kaiju, or yeah. the, or just different things um, that we kind of go deeper dives into, kind of more specific reflecting. We've been through most of these movies, all the Bond movies and most of the Godzilla movies at this point, and I think that there is a kind of a time to really get deeper analysis into a lot of these different aspects of the franchise. And the second thing after that is that we are also going with, um, uh, we are doing news updates so we can um, mitigate those, uh, any of the recent developments in either of our franchises at the top or the ends of these episodes. And uh, we we will do those as, we will do those as needed. Uh, Our first um, uh, weekly or our first like quote unquote weekly news episode will actually air this Friday or Saturday. Um, I haven't decided when when I'm actually going to put it up yet. Because we felt like, you know, a lot of those episodes, they get top heavy with like talking about new castings or or trailers or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And we felt like it was like, even if we just spend like, you know, 15, 20 minutes a week, just like kind of chatting about it, it would be behoove the episode to kind of move a little bit faster. Yeah. so, uh, so we hope you enjoy all that future content that's coming out. Um, all that as, stuff again. Most of, most people put that on Patreon. We give yeah. it to you for free. <laughs> it's true, and and honestly, like I'm a broken record in saying it, but we're doing it ultimately because we do like doing it. And oh, uh, yeah. this again, this is the, this is so. Here's the thing. This is my favorite part of every other week, and now it gets to be my favorite part of every week. Oh, it's great. That's nice. That's nice. Um, all right, Nick. Well, uh, uh, with that, um, I'm so look out for all those episodes, uh, the spoiler review of King of the Monsters, and um, and uh, check out our entire library if you're new and haven't and you're unfamiliar. And until then, I'm done. We're done. Let's finish. Let's wrap this up. All right, bonzillapod at gmail.com. Again, now you can email us different uh, topics you'd like to, to share or want us to talk about, or, you know, things you want to discuss on those extra episodes, or people we should have on as guests. If you want to be a guest, you know, maybe not you specifically. Maybe you might be a good guest. Yeah. I don't know. 
Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, there's technology. There's Discord. Yeah, we can. There's Discord, Skypes. Yeah. yeah, we can do that. Yeah. You know? Uh, especially if you know maybe you are you were in a Bond movie or a Godzilla movie, we'd love to chat with you. Yeah, Daniel Craig, if you're listening, yeah, give us a call. Um, yeah, like maybe like an army guy yeah. from uh, from one of the Godzillas. Sure. Um, you can also tweet us uh, at twitter.com/bondzilla007, facebook.com/bondzilla007. You can like, up, subscribe, iTunes, and SoundCloud. We're still getting those likes and reviews, guys. We're happy about them. So thanks again. Uh, and I think what's appropriate for this one, I, you know, I mentioned the, the, the infamy of the soundtrack at the end of the episode. Well, so why don't we leave you with the main Casino Royale theme? Well, we shall let it speak for itself. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Seven games, bonds at Casino Royale. They came to save the world and win the gal at Casino Royale. Six of them went to a heavenly spot. The seventh one is going to a place where it's terribly 